Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Some of us on staff and our elder board has been thinking, talking, praying, discussing, conversing, trying to discern uh, what are the areas of the church where we need to continue to grow and improve on? What are the areas of the church that need uh, more specific leadership and so forth? And out of those conversations, we began to talk about next staff people we might want to consider bringing in and roles we thought we might need to fulfill. And one of those roles that is obviously important to us uh, is this area of Mission, this area of how do we live outside this room? How do we live outside these walls at school, at work, in our neighborhoods, on whatever team our children play on? How do we interact with those uh, in our lives and our everyday lives in a manner that embodies the reality of the kingdom of God and demonstrates the goodness of life in him? How do we do that individually? And perhaps even more importantly, how do we do that in smaller communities? How do we gather in relationship outside of here and in a, in a way embody and manifest the goodness of the kingdom in those smaller communities? That was one of the areas that we feel like we need to think about in terms of staffing. And another area that uh, we have talked about for a long time here is this area of formation, spiritual formation and relationship, community. And so as those conversations were happening, uh, we did not put together formal job descriptions. We did not post anything on the various platforms. One can do that to try to find pastors looking for jobs, et cetera, et cetera. We just kind of talked about it, prayed about it, and left it there. And I won't go into all the details, but a few months ago, in just kind of an organic way, I ended up in a conversation with first Krista Carlson and then with uh, Krista and Dan. We had several discussions about life, their ministry in Florida now, uh, what makes their heart beat, etc. And then some others on staff and the elder board had conversations with them. And it just has kind of morphed and twisted and turned. And on Wednesday, they showed up here. Well, we invited them. They didn't just show up. But we invited them to come for about a week and spend that week with us, learn who we are and we to learn who they are. We had a gathering Friday night. They've been meeting with tons of people throughout this week. And so they're going to be coming in a moment uh, to share with us and to give today's message. I've been thinking about this ever since meeting them face-to-face, and there's a little story that kind of captures uh, a cool thing that I saw. So their family, I'll probably butcher this, but they have Dan's parents live in Moraga, so in the East Bay, and uh, they're, Dan and Krista are originally from California, uh, going to school. Dan went to Berkeley, Krista went to Washington, University of Washington, which isn't in California. But in any case, uh, they're from California, so they know the area. They have lots of family here. And their family came up here on Thursday uh, to sort of see them. And they have three boys that they, the family was going to watch. And so we were outside the offices. They hadn't seen them yet since they, they arrived. They're, they live in Florida, great distance between them. I guess it had been eight months since they had seen them. So we're standing there. Dan and Chris and I are standing outside. We're in the sort of in between the buildings. 
And Dan's parents are going that way with Ashley, who is taking them to try to find us. And then Dan calls their name, and they turn around. And Dan's mom starts running toward us with her arms open like this. And I'm thinking, boy, she's she wants to hug me. She really kind of... And she sort of, she did hug me, but I don't think she was looking for me. She was looking for, for Dan and Krista. And the thing that struck me in that is, here are two people, Dan, Krista, and their, their young sons. And we're all ministers, we're all missionaries, we all serve God, seek to in our lives and our jobs and so on. But there's something about people who give themselves to uh, this vocational thing, the church, missionary, whatever. And this is just what struck him, not elevating that above anything else. But here these guys are living all the way in Florida. They have family in Seattle. They have family out here. And there they were seeing each other, meeting each other, reuniting the emotion of that, the depth of that. And I just have been struck by Dan and Krista's passion for the kingdom that's taken them all the way to Florida And being involved in church, um, being away from family, raising three sons, uh, young sons, you don't have the support system of family. That can be lonely. That can be hard. It's a grind. Uh, Not Oak Hills Church, but most churches are a grind anyway. And we, you guys are way different. So I think it is important for us, regardless of what happens in the future with these guys. Uh, for a moment, I don't want that to matter. What I want to say to you is uh, it would be good for us as they come to share, Dan and Krista, that uh, they've made sacrifices. They're continuing to make sacrifices. And I would like us to dig just a tad bit deeper and not just welcome them as they come, but express our appreciation for their life poured out, if you will, as they come. So Dan and Krista, why don't you come? Thanks, Mike. Um, well, we just want to say thank you to everyone for being so kind and generous to us. Those of you who we have met, we've, we've interacted with various slices of, of Oak Hills, and we have just enjoyed getting to know you, hearing your stories, and you hearing us and learning us about us. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and this is my wife, Krista. And uh, we have uh, only preached like this one time, this back and forth thing, and that was about an hour and a half ago. So, <laughs> so here we go. Um, I'm a big fan of James Bond. I hope you are too. I find those movies to be absolutely funny, ridiculous, but at the same time super entertaining. I think James Bond is just a fascinating character. He's always so noticeable. He's so well-dressed. He's good-looking. Um, he has so many cool gadgets and gizmos that he's handed to. Uh, he's got a pen that he can click and that it's going to blow up as a bomb, but you never know. It's just a regular pen. He can control a BMW uh, from a smartphone. I'm sure that could probably happen already today, but he has all these cool things that he interacts with. His life is so interesting. He always gets the girl or the girls. There's always somebody new and exciting uh, that's in his life. He, his life is never boring. In, ma- in fact, I kind of wonder how a guy that attracts so much attention and excitement and life and is the center of attention could ever be a secret agent. It's, he's never anonymous. Every room he walks into, he's just the center of attention. It makes me wonder, I walk into so many rooms in my life, and nobody has any idea who I am, perhaps I should have been a secret agent. Just wondering. 
But sometimes a person can be so noticeable, so beautiful, so extraordinary that you don't know what to do. I chose to marry that person. Very thankful for her. We're not all that fortunate or able to do that. But Jesus Christ himself, without a doubt, was an extraordinary, extraordinary person. In the transfiguration, when he was on top of a mountain with his friends, he reveals his radiating glory to them. He reveals that he is divine. The glory of God exuding out of this person's body. The finiteness of God somehow located within this limited body. And Jesus reveals the fullness of the glory of God in himself. It's amazing. But why is it that, that Jesus, who appears in glory to James, John, and Peter's best buddies, chooses to keep his appearance toned down everywhere else? Unlike James Bond, Jesus chooses to express himself as an ordinary person for the vast majority, majority of the time he is with us. He has dirty feet. He cleans the dishes. He prays for others. He's participating in community life in the synagogue. He uses the bathroom. He's an ordinary person. He's human, just like you and me. See, Jesus looked ordinary like every single person. He's so nondescript in Scripture that we actually have no record of his his appearance except for one physical feature, which is that feature that Jewish boys receive on the eighth day of life, if you're following me. But other than that, while Jesus is extraordinary, there's nothing extraordinary about his appearance. He chooses to live in the ordinary with people like you and me. Now, modern Christian publishing has a lot of great stuff coming out. There's been a lot of great things that have come out over the the thousands of years of history that we have. But there's a trend in modern Christian publishing. There's books about endless church growth, or everything is a promise of radical experience with Christ, including our relationship as disciples. It's as though our culture is just expressing through our own publishing sometimes our obsession with being great. One of my kids actually played for a, a, a coach. And I kid you not, he would yell to the kids on the, field, on the field, be great or be forgotten. And Chris and I, of course, would laugh because it's so ridiculous. But it sort of gets at the heart of every single parent that wants to see their kid in the major leagues. Be great or be forgotten. See, greatness mixed with the American dream and the commodification of our faith experience, uh, people in churches like you and me, and churches themselves are in great danger today, especially our fellow evangelicals, in that we are the, word sense, uh, the word-centered stream in the church family. We, we adhere, adhere primarily to the word of God as that stream of life in our souls. We often prioritize church growth in numbers and budgets, which is often the all-consuming narrative behind the, the expression and the desire to be great. I mean, I was visiting a family, did a pastoral visit one time, and there was a sign written on the front door of this wonderful family's home, written by a child, that said, No non-epic people allowed. I chose to enter anyway. <laughs> Julie Canlis, uh, she's an author up in Washington State, she wrote this wonderful book called A Theology of the Ordinary. And in it, she explains that about 200 years ago, Charles Finney was the first marketer of the gospel. He did a scientific study of human emotion, And from this, he developed new methods which caught on quickly. Really important methods, really helpful methods for the kingdom of God. He came up with the idea of revivals, tent meetings, and altar calls. And in his own autobiography, he speaks about revivals and how to help more people come forward to receive Jesus. To be clear, calling people to faith is a good thing. Challenging people to follow the work of the Spirit and let that Spirit work in their hearts, that is a good thing. 
but emotional manipulation is not. He utilized something that uh, was called the anxious bench. So anybody that was concerned about their salvation would sit on the anxious bench and then the revivalist would point his attention to that person to try and manipulate a decision for Jesus. Now, God has and continues to reveal his glory uh, and, and uses things like revival and no less Finney and all the things that all the great things that he has brought to the table for us. Yet this extreme expression of faith began 200 years ago. It was very noticeable. It became, it became the beginning of this expression of what many today in the church feel is true Christianity. In that, the goal is this never-ending mountaintop experience of discipleship with Jesus. And then when we are expected to live in that mountaintop experience 24-7, it makes the ordinary church con- uh, context seem old or boring, that it's not exciting, that church is just slow, and that it doesn't have immediate measurable results. So, as a result of this, uh, Finney and his group, they had revivals in communities, and then they go to the same community and have another re-revival and a re-re-revival. And that area, particularly in New York State, in which Finney worked, was known actually historically as the burned-over district, because the spiritual enthusiasm could no longer produce spiritual fruit in the people in that area of the world. The soil had been exploited. Look, quick growth can be a gift. But slow growth, that really, really matters. Michael Horton wrote another book on ordinary, being ordinary. And he said, we can miss God in the daily stuff. We're looking for the extraordinary moment outside God's word and outside conversation with him daily in prayer. We're looking for him outside of family worship and especially outside public gatherings on the saints day, excuse me, on the Lord's day each Sunday. If we were even more, if we were more serious about these ordinary means of grace, he says, I'm convinced the church would have a much greater and stronger witness in the world today. And he continues, Riley saying, that it's more fun actually to be part of movements than churches. We can express our own individuality in a movement, pick our favorite leaders and be swept off our feet at numerous conferences. We can be anonymous, he says. And this matters because the desire to be epic is written into our culture, and I find it in myself. I wonder sometimes, has God made a mistake in that I am so ordinary, and that my life is ordinary? I go to work. I raise kids. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a husband, a citizen in the community, a citizen of the nation, and a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's all so ordinary. Canlis pokes fun at this trend in saying, she said, I want to see a Christian conference focused on Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, encouraging us to, quote, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Where are we going to find that conference? And here's my point. Our ordinary life does not prohibit ministry. It is the primary place for ministry. I'm up. Uh, I think Dan is really good at this stuff. you. I love you. Uh, I get more nervous when I speak in large front, uh, groups. I have um, some issues with self-confidence that I don't think Dan has or has the pleasure of having. And so I thought I would just share a little bit about my story and why I struggle with my ordinary being good enough. Because so much of our resistance to the ordinary revolves around our identity and our sense of self-worth. So a large part of my story was that I was really overweight as a little girl and was made a fun up 
made fun of all through my childhood. So I grew up just feeling really ashamed of my body, uh, feeling less than, and always kind of felt the need to get people's approval. I really wanted people to like me. I mean, obviously, I still struggle with that. But that is, that's my story. So I remember, um, you know, this really wasn't addressed in my life until after college. And someone sat me down and said, okay, so if you do not see beauty in yourself, where do you see beauty? And I am the type, oh, this. Mm-hmm. I forget about it. I, oh, we wear head mics yeah. at, uh, in Memorial. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to tell you, Carl, there is no trust like me going to the bathroom with this on, because I can't control it. And every time I was like, oh my God, so scary. Anyway, that's a side note. But, um, so, uh, so they, they asked me where I saw beauty, and I'm the type of person who I go outside. Um, I connect with God so quickly when I see trees, and I see mountains, and I see water. Um, there's something about being outside in God's creation where I just, I feel like I just, I, I see beauty. And so my answer to this question was about to be, I see beauty in God's creation. And then I saw, saw, realized the irony of those words and stopped talking. Uh, does any, anyone familiar with Brene Brown in the house? Mm-hmm. She is my lady. She is a, so Brene Brown is a shame researcher and she has spent her entire career looking at why people do not feel like they are good enough and what that what's that about for people. So in her research, she found that the most common attributes associated with femininity is being thin, nice, and modest. And for masculinity, it is primacy of work, control over emotion, control over women, and... Um, There's one more. Pursuit of status. Brene writes, Love and belonging are essential to the human experience. Only one thing separated men and women who felt a deep sense of love and belonging from the people who seemed to be struggling for it. That one thing is the belief in their worthiness. When we spend a lifetime trying to distance ourselves from the parts of our lives that don't fit with what we think we're supposed to be, we stand outside of our story and we hustle for our worthiness by constantly performing, perfecting, pleasing, and proving. Our sense of worthiness, that critically important piece that gives us access to love and belonging, lives inside our story. And that is especially true for our Christian story, our Christian narrative. When the author of Genesis was describing creation, the imagery used was very specific and particular. So to a Jewish audience, a very intentional picture was being painted. Seven days of separating water, bringing lights, setting boundaries, and the placement of the image of God. Because in the ancient Near East, temple dedications often lasted seven days with basins of water, with candlelight, with curtains as walls, and an idol. So to the Jewish year, they would have recognized something essential about the creation narrative, which is God was building a cosmic temple. The garden was not a particular place in creation. It was meant to be 
the whole of creation. The water, the lights, the boundaries, and God's presence resting in the middle. So the crazy part is, in the ancient Near East, the culmination of the temple dedication happened on the last day when an idol of wood or stone would have been placed in the middle, just to represent the particular deity that was being worshipped. And in our story, the image of God that is placed in the middle of the temple is us. So God is Lord of all creation. The whole world is his temple, and we are his image bearers in it. And that is where we derive our worth and our value from. That's the core of our identity, and that's why our everyday matters, and that's why our ordinary self matters. He put us in this world to bear his image, just the way it is and just the way we are. So that day when someone asked me if I didn't see beauty in myself, where did I see it? I closed my eyes, and um, for the first time in my life, I just saw this um, very beautiful image of me. It was like God gave me his eyes so that I could see myself through his lens. I just remember um, being overwhelmed with this like peace about who I was, and I saw myself the way he sees me I actually remember waking up the next morning like I'm a crier Um, I remember waking up the next morning and looking down at my thighs which I hated my entire life and said I have beautiful thighs (laughs) (laughs) so miracle obviously because who likes their thighs Um, so that doesn't mean that I am not nervous still when I talk in front of people but it does mean that my self-talk is don't hustle. I I don't need to hustle for approval, and I don't need to impress anyone because I am a child of God, and that whether I do well today or not does not change that fact. And um, that is where my identity resides. So the core of our identity is that we are children of God and not that we're thin or that we're successful, or that we're unique, or that we're killing the Sunday service, <laughs> but that we are made in his image. And the problem with that is we just really struggle to believe that, or want that, or think that that, that in itself is good enough. Mm-hmm. So a part of our human story is that we often want to be in a different one. And so we write our own, and that is where Jesus comes in, and also Dan. Right? Not the same person. <laughs> so I'm going to reread Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was doing one of the most basic things people do. He was eating. He's not only fully God, he's fully human. In the 300s AD, there was this great man named Athanasius, a wonderful writer. And he said, Jesus' own body, his body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument 
He was not defiled by being in the body. Rather, he sanctified or made holy the body by being in it. In other words, by Jesus being incarnated, he is actually making the human body holy again. Not only was he eating and that he didn't defile his own godliness by eating, but he was eating with many tax collectors and sinners. These being the immoral scoundrels who would be unwelcome among fine, upstanding citizens in the community. Jesus is making a point saying, I am with these people. Jesus is inviting these, mis- these misfits into the kingdom of God for a transformative relationship with him. And he's doing it through ordinary means. There's no fireworks. There's no pyrotechnics. There's no bait and switch. He's doing it through a meal. So ordinary. This is a simple way to show that God is actually present and approachable with regular, everyday people. The Pharisees get really ticked off about this, especially that one of their fellow rabbis is doing this. And and one thing to note is that Jesus spends a lot of his time differentiating the kingdom of God from Pharisaical teaching. In that, the problem with the Pharisees' teaching was their faith expression was about being epic. It was about being extraordinary in their spirituality. They had added over 600 laws to Torah, as well as tithing to this extreme. They were fasting, so their faces looked gaunt and terrible. They would pray in public, all these wonderful-sounding prayers, so everyone could hear how holy they were. And they were also making sure not to associate with unsavory people. And Jesus responds by saying to them, You are missing the point. In fact, Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And he's indirectly saying to his challengers that the way into the kingdom of God is by acknowledging our need for help. It's by acknowledging our imperfection and not by hustling for our own perfection on the front end. The issue with the Pharisees is that they believed that the Messiah would come, that they would be liberated from Roman occupation if Israel was holy enough. So they figured, hey, we've got to make ourselves as holy as we can, and then God is going to free us from this terrible from this terrible occupation from Rome. The healing that's actually taking place in this meal that they're missing is a meal that is restoring relationship with ordinary people back to God. What was lost in the garden long ago to sin and death is being restored through the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And unlike the Pharisees, these wayward people are becoming image bearers of God again. They are the image in God's holy temple. It's being restored in fullness to them. Jesus pushes against the Pharisees because their extreme acts of sacrifice blind them to the work of God right in front of them. God desiring mercy, not sacrifice, is a way of God saying, I desire right relationship with you over ritual. Ritual can be really helpful, but ritual without relationship is empty and dead. And that's why Jesus is quoting the prophet Hosea here, where God is calling out Israel for sacrificing to him through ritual. They're ticking off all the boxes on what they're supposed to do, but they have no space in their hearts for him. In fact, their hearts are so far away that, the, that through Hosea the prophet, God is saying to them that you are a merciless people, that you are thieves and murderers. He's saying this to the religious leaders in Hosea. That you become so hard-hearted that they don't actually know or love the God they're sacrificing to. The one that desires above all things mercy not sacrifice. The great sacrifice that's to come in the future will be from God himself, and it will be good, and it's going to be perfect, and it will do what needs to be done. It will melt the hearts of those who love and follow the one who dies for them. But for the hard-hearted, no act of mercy, even if it were God sacrificing himself for them, it won't matter. 
God's mercy expressed is in the ordinary, on a dirty, disgusting cross, that normal means of execution for criminals and failed revolutionaries. They won't see the extraordinary holy act that it is, because the religious leaders would rather have a strong warrior who comes in and conquers in the name of God. In other words, they would rather have a Jewish Alexander the Great. Do you guys remember your history at all? About 300 AD, there's this guy named Alexander the Great. He's actually Macedonian, but he, he conquered the known world at the time in the name of Greece. And that's the idea of what it looks like in, for success in their mind's eye. They want to conquer the known world in the name of God. But the conquest that the Lord God has in mind through the inbreaking of his kingdom is not a conquest like that. It doesn't function in that way. The conquering is actually your heart. It breaks you. It reforms you. It changes you. It challenges you. And it continues to transform you throughout the rest of your life. The Pharisees were looking for a world conqueror, and they couldn't see that a suffering, merciful king would choose to communicate his love for the world by dying for them. There is no space for that for them. It's so extraordinary, but it's happening in the ordinary right in front of them. See, the majority of our life takes place in the ordinary, and that's a really good thing, because you've got a lot of ordinary time. Jesus' epic moments in scriptures, his healings, his life, his death, his resurrection, were in large part to show people that God himself has come into the ordinary, not to amaze people, not to blow our socks, to knock our socks off, but to prove to people like you and me that God himself cares about our waking, our sleeping, he cares about our work, our children, and our neighbors. And the extraordinary will break through, but it's not in the ways that we'd expect. Personally, I, I struggle with being present in the moment. I'm up front with you, so it really focuses me to be present in the moment. But I struggle to be present in the moment, and it's really magnified even more in my own life when I'm at home with my kids, all three of them, who are blessed with extremely loud voices like their dad. (laughs) I do not need this microphone. I have a great family, but I'm not present often with what's really going on in front of me. I'm thinking about work, all the things that I'm doing. I'm ruminating about the past. I'm thinking about the future and the meetings and the sermon series that needs to be planned and all these other boxes that I have to tick off my to-do list. And in that moment, I'm neglecting what's right in front of me, the ordinary, which just seems so ordinary. I'm missing the moment. And for me, it's hard to be present because I struggle to value that the ordinary really is special. That it's good enough. I'm distracted instead of enjoying the ordinary. That incredible gift that is the overwhelming majority of my life. I have loved the mountaintop experiences of faith. I've had plenty of them. But part of becoming a mature disciple of Jesus Christ is learning to live in the valleys and everything in between. Now, if I could choose how it would go, I would not do it that way. But because God is sovereign and he is good, he knows that that's not good for me and it's not good for you either. The story of the Pharisees makes sense to me because they're also preoccupied with things that don't matter. They're missing the point. You know, in Jesus' birth, in his adolescence, his baptism, in his adulthood, he is restoring divine union in every aspect of life. Jesus is healing my life through his incarnation. As Irenaeus, who lived uh, not long after Jesus, said, he put it this way. He said, God is ta- Jesus is taking on what is ours in order to give us what is his. He's reuniting, he's uniting again the human and divine. Now, not only is the world God's temple, but so are we. (coughs) 
Uh, Julie Canlis says it beautifully this way. She says, indeed, what was truly the mission of the Son? Contemporary Christianity would phrase it as something like, to save us from our sins, which is partly right. However, early Christianity, as it developed just after Jesus' death and resurrection, would say something more holistic, like, the mission of the Son was to turn humanity back to the Father in every aspect of sinful human life. Cough. <laughs> so nothing will keep you honest in a sermon like having your little sister and your in-laws in the front row. So I have to preface everything I'm going to say because they'll get me afterwards if I don't. Um, this is us preaching to ourselves uh, uh, because we. this is a, a lifetime of work and... Um, <coughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. You can get water. Um, being in the ordinary and appreciating the ordinary is something that I struggle with, but know is important. So one of the things in particular that I have a hard time with is small talk. I am, if anybody knows me, they know that I am a get to the point kind of person. So especially if you're my husband, um, it is it means that I don't need to hear about what you ate for lunch if all you really need to tell me is call Susan because she wants to go to happy hour. You know, <laughs> I think it's important. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, but that's just me. And I'm play, I'm showing you my cards. Oh, thank you. So there's a great movie and, or sorry, there's a great moment in the movie Saving Mr. Banks, if anybody has seen it. Uh, P.J. Travers is the main character, and she's the author of Mary Poppins, and Disney is courting her to make a movie, or make Mary Poppins into a movie. And P.J. Travers is a very serious woman. There's no frivolity. She has no time um, for anything that isn't to the point. So Disney flies her from London to California, puts her up in a hotel, and sends a driver for her every morning. And the driver is the opposite. Her driver is sweet and soft and gregarious. And every morning, he greets her with the phrase, the sun came out again for you today. And she rolls her eyes and is super annoyed because the sun doesn't come out for anyone, especially not her. It just does it. And... um, There's a time in the movie where she is going through a crisis moment. The driver sees her sitting alone underneath a tree playing in the dirt. Because that's what she used to do when she was a little girl and got really sad. She would play in the dirt. So he walks over to her. He sits down and starts playing in the dirt with her. And he says, do you know why I talk about the weather so much? It's because... I have a daughter who is in a wheelchair, and so if the sun comes out that day, it means I get to bring her out into the garden, and she gets to spend the whole day outside enjoying our beautiful flowers. And if it, and if it isn't sunny, that means she's cooped up inside all day. So, small talk matters. Doing the laundry matters. Potty training is ministry. (laughs) It for sure is. It is hard. Uh, The freeway can be a mission field, right? If we have our Christian stickers, especially in our cars, and we aren't courteous and safe drivers, please take them off. 
<laughs> I don't have one on my car because <laughs> I drive too quickly. Um, listening patiently to a long sermon is an act of service. The, uh, the ministry is in our mundane. Our everyday, seemingly trivial moments of life really matter. There's a great quote by P.J. O'Rourke that says, Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to help mom do the dishes. <laughs> we all want to do important things. We want to be important people. But we fail to realize that often the most extraordinary thing that we can do is be faithful children of God in the everyday, mundane things of life. Our current cultural moment has us in a frenzy. We are hurried. We are overburdened. We see our everyday life as a hindrance to doing the more important things. We get frustrated at our kids if they don't move fast enough in the morning to get out for church. We don't have time to listen to our neighbor tell us about her grandchildren. Our spouse is as valuable to us as he is useful. (laughs) We are unkind to our family members or our customer service agents uh, or our friends or our coworkers when they don't give us what what we want when we want it. But ministry is in the mundane. But how do we get behind this? How do we affirm the ordinary? And how do we make a shift in our lives? So first, we have to value it. We have to see the value of the ordinary and the everyday. And then we need to engage it. My thing, what I talk about a lot, is slowing down. Not because I do it. Definitely because I should do it, but because I believe that is the key to how we do life well as Christians and disciples. So we need to stop hustling, and we need to stop avoiding the ordinary and start blessing it. For some of us, avoiding the ordinary means living hurried lives. So for some of us, engaging the ordinary is saying no to the extras in order to say yes to the ordinary. So uh, LaDan and I were talking about this the other day. For some, it might be saying no to all of the extracurricular activities, or at least some of the extra, extracurricular activities our, children's, our children participate in so that we can say yes to family dinners. Or it's saying no to working long, long hours or that side hustle so that we can say yes to simpler living. Or it could be saying no to even a church volunteer project so that we can say yes to our our own mental health. It could be saying no to that extra session at the gym to help our neighbor move a couch. uh, Others of us avoid the ordinary by escaping it. And so for them, it means saying yes to some things in order to say no to other things, like yes to a dinner invitation So we say no to our computer at home or yes to a small group so that we say no to Netflix or video games. It could be saying, and my sister's been on this on me for a long time, yes to an adult softball league (laughs) so that I could start having fun and being playful in my life. But it's hard 
even for me to believe that it's okay or even really good to delight in ordinary everyday things, to play, to work, to conv- just even to have a conversation, a slow conversation. We don't have time for that usually. Um, or to rest. And that engaging these things actually unearths holiness. So I'm going to read from the message because we think Eugene Peterson um, says this very well in the word. It's Romans 12, 1 through 2. So I just invite you guys um, to maybe receive it, just a posture of reception as I read it. And that's how we're going to conclude. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit, it, fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to the level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops a well-formed maturity in you. So please pray with me. Holy Spirit, I pray um, that we can hold these things lightly and what you want to stick, may they stick. Uh, What needs to fall away, may they fall away. I pray that you give us eyes, ears, heart, and spirit to receive what is good and what is true. Help us slow down in order to catch up to you. Help us to value what you've given us in our everyday, ordinary, and repetitive lives. Help us to see you in them, the value of others in them, the value of your good creation, and the value of ourselves. God, you created us in your good image, and that means we are good as well. May it be so by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.